Well, today you might know that we are continuing our journey through the book of Romans. And so far in the first two weeks, we've learned that every single person in this great, big, wide world who has ever lived or whoever will live is a sinner. Not a big surprise, is it? I mean, just look around the world as Daryl prayed today and you can see that. From almost the very beginning of human history, through Adam's rebellion against God's rule, sin entered into the world. And both Jews and Gentiles alike are under sin's power. But then we learn that God has made a way for us to be free from sin's power through the atoning work of Christ Jesus on the cross. And that if we place our faith, our trust in Christ, that we are declared righteous before God. Well, this past week, we've worked our way through chapters 6 and 7 of Romans in our daily Bible reading plan. And if you brought your Bible with you today and third graders, the ones you received, I invite you to turn now to Romans 6 and 7 as we work our way through that portion of Paul's letter throughout this morning's message. Building on his previous teaching in this letter, that we are declared righteous before God when we place our faith and trust in Christ Jesus, Paul begins to expand on this idea that we are dead to sin and that we are alive in Christ. He begins chapter 6 by asking a question in response to the way he ended chapter 5. There, Paul made the statement that as human sin increased, God's grace increased all the more, which is a great thing. Amen. We are thankful to God that his grace increases. And so Paul asks this question. He says, does that mean that we should just go on sinning more and more and more so that God's grace will increase more and more? It's a rhetorical question, not meant for us to answer. Paul answers it for us. He says, of course not. We are dead to sin. And so how can we live in sin any longer? And then Paul reminds us that everyone who has gone under the waters of of baptism was baptized into the death of Christ Jesus with him. That in our baptism, our old sinful self was buried with Christ in his death. That sin's power in our life is broken. That our old sin-loving nature is buried and we are no longer under the control of sin. But my friends, that is only half of the story. Because if we died like Christ in our baptism, Paul says we will also be raised to new life with him as well. We share in this new resurrection life. This is true in every baptism, but it is especially evident visually and symbolically in baptism by immersion. Think about it. As we go under the water, we are buried with Christ in a death to sin. And as we come up out of the water, we are raised to new life in Christ. This is also captured beautifully in the prayer of the great Thanksgiving liturgy, which we participate in before we celebrate Holy Communion as a church, where it says, by the baptism of Jesus' suffering, death, and resurrection, God gave birth to his church, delivered us from slavery to sin and death, and made with us a new covenant by water and the Spirit. You see, Paul makes clear 
that we are no longer slaves to sin. Sin is not our master. Instead, Jesus Christ is our master. And we are set free to obey him and learn from him that he has rescued us from the power of sin so we cannot let sin control us anymore. Paul continues illustrating dying to sin and being set free from the law or the Torah, the Jewish law. So Paul begins Romans chapter 7 with an illustration from marriage. He reminds us that marriage is an earthly institution and that the laws of marriage only govern a husband and wife while both of them are still alive on this earth. You see, Paul does not believe that a person remains married in the afterlife, and neither did Jesus, who says that in the resurrection there will be neither marrying nor being given in marriage. When a man and a woman get married, they are bound together until death us do part. But when one of the partners dies, the other is set free from the marriage laws which bound them while they were both still alive. The spouse who remains is free to marry again if they should so choose. And they would not be committing adultery with their new spouse if they did choose to marry. And all of this brings us up to what I think is maybe the most intriguing part of chapter 7. Paul begins to explain the place of the Jewish law in all of this. And he begins to anticipate that some of the readers of this letter, the readers in Rome, might try and twist what he is saying and and make it out as though the law in and of itself is sinful. The Jewish law, the, the biblical law, the Torah, again, I'm talking about. Paul says, absolutely not. The law is holy because it reveals to us who God is and how God wants us to live, the will of God. He also says that this law is temporary because it has fulfilled its function in leading us to Christ. You see, the law is limited. It teaches us what is wrong. It teaches us what sin is. But the law has no power at all to rescue us from the slavery of sin. And then, beginning in verse 7 through 14, Paul switches from using the plural pronoun we, and he begins to use the singular pronoun I. Why does he do this? Who is he talking? Who is talking here? Does Paul seem to indicate that someone else is speaking? This is actually a literary device that Paul begins to use. It was very common in that time. It's called speech in character. In other words, you give a speech as though you were another character in in the drama or in the letter in this case. In this case, Paul is speaking as if he were Adam. He writes in Romans 7, 9, Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. Every listener would have known only Adam was alive before the law. Before that commandment, you can eat of any tree in the garden except of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. Only Adam was alive before God gave that commandment. And then in verse 14, something interesting happens right in the middle of the verse. Listen again and see if you can catch it. Paul writes this. He says, we know that the law is spiritual but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. 
I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate to do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. Did you hear that change? Did you catch it? Paul switches from we to I again. Is Paul describing his present circumstances? Is Paul struggling with sin in his life? I mean, it sounds like he's explaining a tug of war, a, a civil war going on inside of him. He knows what Christ requires of him. And he knows what kind of person he longs to be, but he just can't seem to get there. He feels helpless to change. Now, there are a lot of scholars who say that Paul, in this section, is looking at his past life, that he's describing himself before his conversion experience on the road to Damascus, where the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to him. I mean, after all, he describes himself as someone who is carnal, as someone who is still in the flesh, sold under sin. He's a prisoner. He's not someone enjoying freedom and joy in the gospel. And most Wesleyan or Methodist scholars and our Eastern Orthodox brothers and sisters would agree with this understanding. But there are other scholars like St. Augustine or many of the reformers like John Calvin and Martin Luther and most of the rest of the Western church fathers who would disagree they would say, look at verse 22. He delights in God's law. His will is toward the good, and he doesn't want to do evil. They would say this describes a Christian. Besides, think about it, the more like Christ we become, the more painful sin is in our life, right? Sin can and does continue in the life of a believer. And so the question remains, is this a flashback to Paul's pre-conversion, pre-Damascus road days? Or is it a Christian Paul who finds himself still struggling with sin? Well, maybe those aren't the only two options. Maybe there's a third option. Maybe this is a person either before their conversion or after their conversion who is trying to to rely on their own efforts to be righteous. And the result is that they find themselves beaten back again and again and again by the power of indwelling sin. I know I sure feel that way sometimes. Maybe you do too. You try and try, but you fail until you feel like giving up. Oh, you come to worship, you sing some songs, you try to read your Bible and pray, but you just don't seem to experience the freedom and joy that you thought you were going to. 
And so time and again, you feel like giving up because it's hard to keep going when you try and try and fail and fail. I don't know what struggle each one of you faces, but I do know that we all struggle with something. Maybe you struggle with gossip, pride, or selfishness. Or maybe your struggle is with lust or gluttony or materialism. Maybe your battle is an addiction that just seems to be stronger than you are. Maybe you don't have any control over the words that come out of your mouth or your temper. You sin, and you make a promise that you're never going to do it again, and then just as soon as you turn around, there you are one more time. For a long time, I lived my Christian life thinking that there must be some way for me to become the master of my struggles, to become the victor over them, to figure out a way to stop doing the things that I do not want to do. It's a frustrating way to live. Jesus not only died for your sins and mine so that we could be forgiven and die to sin, but he also rose again to live his life through you. My friends, it isn't God's plan for you to be saved from sin and then just to be so exhausted and frustrated trying to live a sin-free life on your own any more than it is God's plan for you to be saved from sin and then just go right on sinning. Yes, God accepts us right where we are, but God does not intend to leave us there. Well, the good news is that this exhausting life can be replaced by a different kind of life and that God already has the plan in place for how each of us can live the Christian life in all of its fullness. At first, it sounds crazy, and it will sound crazy when I share it with you, but hear me out. You're not supposed to be a good Christian. That's right, you are not supposed to be a good Christian. Yeah, there's a need for self-discipline, Yes, there are going to be some choices that you have to make. Yes, it requires our participation, but the power of the Christian life is not you. It's not me. The power of the Christian life is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's Jesus Christ raised from the dead by his Holy Spirit, living his life in and through you. It's not you trying to be more loving. It's you surrendering and cooperating with Jesus Christ's desire to love people through you. It's a lot more about resignation and surrender than it is about discipline or conscious active choosing on your part. This life is found under the lordship of Christ. And this lordship makes demands that are testing and difficult, but they are also liberating and freeing. You see, the primary thing is Christ in you. Take it from me. I've tried to be disciplined enough. I've tried to make a plan on my own that would work. But what I've found time and time again is it doesn't work. I don't work right. I can't get it right. I, even in my saved condition, my fallen nature is still there. 
And so Paul says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I mean, have you ever fallen on your knees or laid in your bed in the dark of the night and wondered, God, what's it going to take for me? What's it going to take for me to turn this corner finally? What's it going to take for me to move forward into all of the things that you've promised, God? I know that you wouldn't have raised Jesus Christ from the dead to leave me languishing here in defeat and discouragement and fear and despair. Well, we find the answer. Paul writes it in verse 25. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks be to God is an exclamation of discovery. You see, the real discovery is that the provision is through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the Christian life. In four words, Jesus Christ our Lord. I'll say it again. Christ has made no provision for you to live the Christian life. He has only made the provision for him to live his life through you. I know that there have been some days when I have called out those exact same words that Paul wrote. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me? There have been times when I have been so frustrated and discouraged that I prayed, Lord, I can't live this kind of life anymore. Lord, I can't do this on my own. You're going to have to do it in me and through me. Jesus, I need your power at work in me. I surrender to you. Jesus, come and live your life through me. And you know what? That changes things. Because Christ lifts those struggles from us and he begins to free us from, from them by living, by putting his living power alive and at work in each and every one of us. John Wesley, who began the Methodist movement in the 1700s, had similar experiences, just like you and I have, just like Paul experienced and wrote about. John Wesley kept a journal for most of his life and at one point he wrote these words, he said, I was much buffeted with temptation, but cried out and they fled away. They returned again and again. Often I lifted up my eyes and he sent me help from his holy place. And herein I found the difference between this and my former estate chiefly consisted. I was striving, yea, fighting with all my might under the law as well as under grace. But then I was sometimes, if not often, conquered. Now I am always conqueror. This truth is found throughout the New Testament over and over again, but so often we don't see it right there before our eyes. So I want to share with you a few other scriptures that will help make this point for all of us. You know, we often quote Romans chapter 5, verse 8 where it says that God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But take a look at verse 10. It says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. You see, my friends, it's all grace. It's all grace. When we give our lives to Christ and are justified, it's a free gift of God's grace. 
And so is that going on to perfection, going on to sanctification, going on to be made fully in the likeness of Christ. It's by Christ's life, by God's grace, that he accomplishes that. You see, we are saved for eternity through the death of Jesus Christ, and we are saved for the rest of our human life through his life also. Jesus Christ is alive. At this very moment, he's alive. He's alive and with us in this room right now. And it was never Christ's intent to just stand off in the corner and watch us try to live for him, struggling to do so, knowing that we can't do it. That's not the way God set it up. Another verse on this point can be found in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. You know what it says. It says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's the Christian life. Christ living in us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul asserts a great thing. He says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. You ever felt like that? I felt like that not very long ago. No matter where I turn, there's just stuff to deal with. Family stuff or church stuff or world stuff for heaven's sakes. And then Paul says we're perplexed but not driven to despair. You know, perplexed is that state of mind where we don't know what to do. And there have been times when I say, God, I don't know what to do. I hope you know what to do because I sure don't know what to do anymore. That's not a very fun place to be. But Paul says that we are perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. We don't know what to do, but we never lose hope. He says we're persecuted, but not forsaken. Paul says people are coming after me. People are opposing me. People are challenging my faith. But then Paul says that we're struck down, but not destroyed. You know, the Christian, we get knocked down sometimes, don't we? But we get up again, because that is never the end. But this, this passage that Paul writes can leave us asking questions. How, how is this done, Paul? How are we persecuted but not forsaken? How are we struck down but not destroyed? Paul goes on to write in verses 10 and 11, and he tells us how. He says, because we are always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. You see, it wasn't Paul trying to work harder. It wasn't because Paul got some amazing pep talk. It was because Paul was always carrying in his body the death of the Lord Jesus so that the life of Jesus was also made known in his body. You see, Jesus Christ is the Christian life. The power is Christ in us. I want to share one more scripture with you to make this point. Let's take a look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and listen to the progression of Paul's instructions on, on how the Christians should live their life. And then just pretend that you hear a little voice in your head answering Paul's uh, statements to us, okay? For example, Paul writes, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idol. And that voice in your head says, oh, sure, Paul, I can do that. I can tell people they're lazy really easy. And then he says, encourage the faint-hearted. And you think to yourself, okay, I can do that. Help the weak. Yeah, I support that. I'm on board with you. Be patient with them all. 
Uh-oh, that sounds a little harder. I know sometimes I don't find it very patient to be, uh, very easy to be patient with people. And then Paul says, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Hey, Paul, that's asking a whole lot. <laughs> and he's not even done yet. He says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. And I think to myself, I can't do all that. And that's why verse 24 is so important. Because Paul finishes by saying, He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. You see, you only have one thing to do. And that is that at every moment we are to resign our minds, our emotions, our wills to Christ in you. Christ in you is the hope of glory. Our part is to trust, to surrender, to give up our life. And God's part is to catch us, to hold us, to do in us and for us what we can never do for ourselves. I mean, I know that when I try to stop being angry or stop being patient, I can't. But when I surrender my whole life, my whole will to God, then I am ready to receive the power to do what I can never do on my own. You see, half measures and self-improvement is never going to get the job done. Each of us has to let go. We've got to surrender. It's interesting to me to think about the third step in the 12-step Alcoholics Anonymous program. It's not make a decision to stop drinking. It's surrender my will to a higher power or to God. You see, you have to aim at a deeper life change. And that's not only true of alcohol problems. Lots of problems besides alcohol will never yield to a headlong assault powered by you as an individual alone. I mean, I can't stop trying to be proud by trying to be more humble. I can't defeat lust by trying hard not to lust. I can't stop lying by trying hard to stop lying. I have to surrender my life. I have to surrender my will. And to surrender my life means that I commit to following Jesus no matter what the outcomes might be. I mean, too often people want to negotiate a deal with God where they get to still stay in charge of their life, but they'll call upon God for a little help on the side when they need it. That doesn't work. That's not surrender. Here's what does work. Surrender to God your own will and ask Christ to live through you. Don't be afraid to be very honest with yourself about the areas that you need Christ to change you. Look inside. Take an honest look inside. Take a moral inventory on a regular basis. Confess your sins and your shortcomings. Repent on a daily basis. Better yet, as soon as you know you've sinned, repent to God. Renounce those negative thoughts and feelings as soon as they come in. Ask Jesus to replace them with his thoughts and his feelings. Ask that Christ would increase, increase the fruit of the Spirit which grows in you. 
because that is how our new nature matures in us. When I surrender my life, when I surrender my will, that means that I want to make my will conform to God's will. And so in each situation, I can ask myself, God, what is your will for me? God, show me who I can serve today for you. God, how can I be the man that you created me to be? I surrender my need to have my own way, God. I surrender my demand to be in control. I surrender my attempts to run the world. My friends, Paul clearly teaches us that when we are born again, sin's power is broken in our lives. And Christ has absolutely rescued us. That we are freed from sin with a capital S and made alive to God through Jesus Christ. That our old self is crucified with him when we are baptized into his death. And through his resurrection, we are raised to a new and resurrected life. Thanks be to God who delivers us through Jesus Christ our Lord. Would you pray with me? Holy God, we thank you that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and through our faith and trust in him and in our baptism, we are sealed as yours. That our old self has died and been buried with Jesus Christ. And also, God, we rejoice in the fact that because you raised Christ from the dead and we've been buried with him, like him, we are also raised to new life, to be a new creation. We thank you, God, that this is all your gift, a gift of grace offered without price, that our salvation is a gift, and that when we surrender to you and let you go to work in us, we will reach the fullness of of Christ that you intended from the very foundation of the earth. And so, Lord, let us die to ourselves and be made alive in you. Accomplish your purposes in and through us this day and tomorrow and every day until we come home to join you in glory everlasting. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.